0: Today on the Thinking God Podcast is J.T. Olson, who takes the biblical mandate to remember the needs of widows and orphans seriously. Uh, J.T. himself was an orphan, and he understands the issue from the inside out, and he's never forgotten those feelings and challenges that he went through during that time. And this guy is one of those guys, as they say, smoking what he's selling. He and his family also adopted an orphan into his already large family uh, in in the recent year, well, in the last 15 years or so and says that has been a pure blessing to all of them. As a businessman, he began to develop strategies that not only helped those looking to adopt, found a way to defray those tremendous costs, but in the process discovered a plan that would help widows at the same time he was helping the orphans. And much of the story can be found in his new book, The Orphan, The Widow and Me, which is available wherever books are sold, Amazon, his website, which is bothhands.org. And it is always a pleasure to talk to somebody whose faith has led them onto a path that has brought great contributions to the world and also personal joy in his own life. Well, J.D., first of all, tell me a little bit about your own story that, that led you to start this, both hands, and we'll talk about your book, uh, The Orphan and the Widow and Me, in a little bit, but tell me a little, a little bit about your own story and wh- how you got to where you are today.
1: Well, I, I love telling the story, right, because it's just, to, to me, it's just a God story. Um, you know, how I, how I started, what I was doing, but... Um, I grew up on a farm in Northeastern Iowa and there was, uh um, you know, it was a great, you know, small, small farm and there was five kids and, and, um, you know, just living a life on a farm. We had, uh, you know, some woods and it's really hilly and most people don't think of Iowa as hilly, but you know, it's it, where we were is about two miles from the Mississippi. So there's a lot of bluffs and everything like that. So it was just a great place to grow up. And, um, I think, you know, probably... One of the major fence posts or events in my life um, was in 1969 March. Um, my mom and dad left to go celebrate for a weekend their 16th wedding anniversary, and us five kids were kind of farmed out to different places. You know, and I remember Saturday night we were being brought home, and because uh, mom and dad were coming home, and I'd played in the barn most of the day. I was dirty. I had to go out in the basement uh, to change clothes and. I remember sitting on his chair, bending over unlacing lacing my boots, and my oldest brother came down the stairs. I, I, I looked up at him, and I said, "Are mom and dad home, because I was excited to see him. And he looked at me, and he said, mom and dad are dead. And uh, I was obviously shocked. I said, what? And he said, mom and dad are dead. They were killed in a car accident an hour ago. And he walked upstairs. And I remember hitting the floor, I remember that cold cement floor, I remember wailing just like any seventh grader would, you know, uh, at that kind of news, but I remember hearing those words and it just, I know what it's like to be an orphan. I know it's the thoughts that go through your head. It's the weirdest thing. Um, it, it literally rocks your world as you can imagine, but it's like everything you think, everything that keeps you tethered in life, you don't realize how much your mom and dad, you know, are such a foundational, and just kind of like all of a sudden it snipped away. And you kind of wonder who's going to take care of us, what's going to happen to us now. And, oh, I just know those feelings. I know what it's like to wake up the next morning. And uh, and literally for the first 30 seconds you're thinking, this is just all a dream. And then for the next 15 seconds it starts to set in that, man, this is not a dream. And uh, it's just that feeling of abandonment, you know, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen to us. And I'm never going to see mom and dad again. Um, so that was kind of a, that was a big point in my life. That was in the seventh grade. And I also know what it's like to be rescued, you know, because about three months before the accident, my mom and dad and my aunt and uncle, my mom's sister, and her husband, they changed their wills. I mean, they literally signed documents and, you know, had to, if anything would happen to one of the families, the other family would take their kids. And my aunt and uncle lived in a very nice suburb of Milwaukee called Brookfield. And um, they had three children of their own. And they took all five of us in. So wow. I know what it's like to have someone come up and say, we got you. You know, and uh, I was, we were very fortunate that that was all taken care of ahead of time. So that was kind of a major deal, but it did, it had a big impact on my life. Obviously I grew up, you know, in an agricultural environment till I was in seventh grade, then in eighth grade moved to a, a nice suburb in Milwaukee, you know, where it was a whole lot different. Uh, it was, it was a different world, but I learned how to deal with life and, and you know, and life isn't fair and you learn how to, how to handle that stuff. But it was, Interesting, then going to that family, you know, all of a sudden my aunt, instead of having three kids, she had eight kids. And I remember in school, she had three shifts going. She had a high school shift going for breakfast. She had a junior high shift going. And she had a grade school shift going. And, uh, you know, their life, her life was rocked, too. Their life will rock, just like ours was. So,
0: Was there any spiritual so we, element of your life at that point? I mean.
1: Yeah, I was, we were raised in a, we went to church every Sunday, raised in a Lutheran church. Uh, a country country church out there in Iowa. I think it was one of the. I think it was the first Lutheran church uh, settled or established west of the Mississippi. Um, I think somewhere in there, but it was an early church. You know, to, you know in our cemetery, and there's my great grandfather. Uh, he's on one end of the cemetery.
2: <laughs>
1: um, you know, you just go through, and you just see generations of, of people, but. Yeah, we were we were raised uh, in a Lutheran church, and you know, heard knew the Christmas story, the Easter story, and everything in between. So I was always aware that uh, there was a God, and He sent His Son.
0: But how did that play out when you know you found out your parents had died? Did that I mean, did you were you still uh, did it throw confusion, or were you pretty grounded in it, or? I don't know, I, I I don't remember, you know, obviously, you know, Greg,
1: that first year when you're going through all that, uh, it's like you're in a low paid shock because no one really ever talked about the accident. No one, we didn't, everyone was just too busy trying to cope with life, you know, life went on. Um, but I don't remember ever being bad at God. I don't remember, you know, thinking this isn't right or there is no God or anything like that. Um, you know, I just remember a few things people said to me at the funeral and at the visitation and just some things that helped me make sense of it all. They weren't all spiritually based, you know, but, or, you know, you know, some people are when they say things that if they're, they're off based biologically, but for some reason they comforted me, you know.
0: So you moved in with your aunt and uncle, huge family there then, and um, um, t- tell me about what the next part, next stage of your life was.
1: Well the next stage then you know you go up through high school and I probably got mixed up with not exactly the best group of people you know um uh I think as I look back on it now I'm 61 now and that was when I was in my teen years and I look back and think I was probably anesthetizing a lot of pain and uh so we got into some got into some things this is back in the in the 70s you know mm-hmm. 72 73 74 and and uh I kind of look at my
0: those are really the, the '60s. Good. People don't remember. You and I are the same yeah. generation. The, the <laughs> '60s didn't start till about '68, '69, they lasted till about '75.
1: <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And, and um, so I got into the things that most kids were getting into. Uh, not most kids. The kids that were doing that. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't hold back. So we got into some drugs and and uh, just. You know, just things like that. I, I, I refer to the junior and senior year of high school as kind of the lost years. Um, but somehow I muddled through and got went to college at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And, uh, of course, that was 74, 75. If you know anything about Madison back right. then, it was pretty liberal. Still and, is. Uh, and it still is. It still is. It's, it's, yeah, it's East of Pravda. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, and that first year in college, I, I probably did nothing really changed. I was really, um, doing some, a lot of, a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have been doing and, and that weren't good in my direction. Life wasn't headed, but something very interesting happened. I, in April of that freshman year, I went to a job to hear, hear uh, about a lot of summer jobs selling books with the Southwestern company. And I didn't, didn't have any interest in the selling. Didn't think I was going to do that, but it turned out to be a, uh, a lifesaver for me. And uh, I went that summer to sell books door to door. uh, And uh, it literally turned my life around because all of a sudden I started associating with people who were working hard. I mean, I worked 80 hours a week and uh, worked hard and all of a sudden people were telling me I was good. I was, I could be successful and I liked it. And I ended up working there for 23 years. (laughs) so it changed it literally changed my life and the reason i came back to do it another summer was because i saw what a difference it made in my life and uh i remember very clearly when it hit me that you know if this had this much of an impact on my life imagine what it could do for other people and friends i knew and people i knew so that's what started that's what started my uh kind of a a curve up you might say
0: and at what point did you transition into um, where you are today? I mean, that, this seems like a, a long trip from, selling. Book, first of all, selling books. Now, <laughs> not exactly <laughs> the top of uh, most people's w- ways to get rich. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it was I was able to make a good living at it. And, and literally, I, I all the way through college, in the summers, I sold books. But after college, then I went with them full time. And then my was to go around to different campuses in Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois, and recruit students to do the same thing. And that's where I think I really started hitting my stride because I just knew that whatever I put into the lives of other people, people, I knew that it would come back into my own. If I just helped enough other people get what they wanted out of life, I knew I would be taken care of. And it was a great experience for me. I mean, I saw a lot of kids come to Christ and, um, uh, you know, it was through Southwestern I came to Christ and uh, fully understanding of what, what Christ did for me and accepted him. Uh, I don't want to so skip, over. I, want to skip over I
0: don't want to skip over that. I mean, how did you know, a lot of times people would not associate working eighty hour weeks with having a spiritual awakening?
1: Well, the senior vice president of the company, Alan Clements, uh, about my fourth or fifth summer, you know, he just took me aside and uh started talking to me and I, you know, I met so many people in the summers. You usually meet on average about three or four thousand mm. companies every summer. And so you have a chance to interact. You learn how to handle yourself. You learn a lot of things, but you also talk to people about, people always bring up, especially the Christians, they always ask you, you know, do you know Christ? And so in the process, I learned a lot about it. I, um, you know, I never, I wouldn't say there was never a time I didn't believe in God. There was never a time I didn't believe that he sent his son to die for my sins. There was never a time I really didn't believe that. But there's one, there's a difference between someone putting a gift in front of you and being aware of the gift and saying, yes, I see the gift. It's on the table. It's all wrapped up. Yes, I see that gift. It's another thing to open that gift and to say, yeah, this is mine. And the senior vice president company led me to Christ. Um, and that had a huge, you know, that had a huge impact. I, am I'm not going to tell you it was a, uh, a, a, a cute turnaround at that point in my life. It was more like a railroad turn.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of cars tractor. on the train where there
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of cars. It was a wide <laughs> turn. You know, didn't turn around right away, but you know, gradually, I just uh, i i i grew in Christ, and and uh, I, you know, like anybody else, I never 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 been perfect, but uh, I just I know the saving grace of Christ.
0: Well, what do you wish you knew so, then that you know now? How's your view of God changed over these years?
1: You know, I guess um, I wish I would have known then that the the things that the, the pain that we have if we take it to him, he helps us deal with it. Um, I wish I would have known more about his unbelievable righteousness and purity and my unbelievable dirt <laughs> you know my filthy rags. And, and the difference. When I think about Christ and his righteousness and who he is, I, I picture him as the Sears Tower and I'm an ant. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the picture I have. And I just know that if I'm ever going to get to where he accepts it's I have to accept Christ. There's no way I can do it on my own. And I just think the more people realize that, the more that we realize our sin and, and what we're really made of, how Christ bridges that gap. It's just I guess I wish I would have known more about that, but you know, as you go to church, you learn, you listen to sermons, you read things, devotions, small groups, men's groups, you know, stuff like that. It takes a lot to learn all that stuff. That's why they say that people are wiser. <laughs> you know, well, you so, had I don't know. I've been, I've,
0: you know, like I said, we're the same generation. I know some people that are exactly where they were 45 years ago. So in their
1: yeah, spiritual yeah, it's, it's, it's world. one thing. To, yeah. yeah, it's one thing to do the same thing every year. You can have. Sixty years of doing the same thing or sixty years and every year learning something. You know, it's uh <laughs> yeah. sixty years of doing the same thing all right.
0: Yeah. Well that ant, you know, the good thing about that ant is we that ant has the keys to all the the building, uh, the rooms in the series here's tower. That's, that'll good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Do you? Have, what are you do you have any personal spiritual practices that are important to you?
1: Uh yeah, I think the number one weapon is, I pray, I've learned more about the power of prayer in the last, especially since I started both hands. Uh, I've just really seen the power of prayer. And I realize that is the most powerful weapon we've got in our, in our, uh, in our holster is the power of prayer. And I don't think I fully realize it, but I realize it a lot more now than I did 15, 20 years ago. Um, but that's one thing. The other thing is, I mean, probably for the last, I don't know, maybe it's 20, 20, since 80, 90, 90, 95. Um, I read my Bible every day. and I, I learned this from a preacher in Nashville. Um, just a good way to do it. I just, I just read a chapter of the Old Testament. I read a chapter of Psalm. I read a chapter of Proverbs. I read a chapter from the Prophets. And I read a chapter from the New Testament. Um, There's that, not too many days I miss. Um, and it's just a good way for me to start my day.
0: What is prayer to you, J.T.? Just, I mean, how, how do you approach prayer?
1: Uh, whenever I want, wherever I want. Uh, with my eyes closed, my eyes open, if I'm driving, if I'm not driving, sitting alone or with other people, if I'm here and seeing something going on. I mean, there's, you know, I'm seeing something going on. There's, I'll just be talking to God and say, Dear God, you've got this situation. Um, give me wisdom. It's a conversation, to me it is, that you have with God. He's there.
0: You mentioned a pastor. Is church an important part of your spiritual experience?
1: Yeah. Church is a big deal. I, I, I love going to church. I mean, I don't see, you know, I, I think when people say, oh, I have to go to church, I'm saying, see, they need to find a different church. <laughs> you know, well, there's I mean, of them We can say that. <laughs> I, I know, but I, when when someone says they don't like going to church, I'm thinking, Gee, what is happening? Going to church, you must have just a. They must not have worship, or they must. You must not have someone preaching to you, and revealing secrets and wisdom from this from the from uh, from the Word that you're not seeing. I mean, I I enjoy going to church. I think I enjoyed it since. Probably 88, 89, maybe even before, before that. No, it was in the, yeah, 84, 85. I started going to a church in Nashville. A guy named Don Finto was preaching. And that's the first time I would heard someone preach like that. And I thought, well, good stuff. And um, I've just been very fortunate to be able to sit under some teachings of some really fine pastors in Nashville. Who, you
0: know, who, who I walk somebody?
1: out of there inspired. I walk out of there fired up.
0: Who, it didn't have to be a pastor, but who have been some of the biggest influences in you as you've developed this ministry?
1: Well, a couple of them are pastors. I mean, what, one guy who's had a huge impact is a guy named Hal Hat. He started um, uh, a ministry 25, or was it 30 years ago, called Christian Leadership Concepts, CLC. It's a two-year men's Bible study equipping thing where you get 12, 10 to 12 men together, and, uh, you meet once a week for two years and you've got a, a curriculum, there's books to read, there's Bible study. I mean, I've done that twice. And my leader, the first time was the founder, Hal Hat, and, uh, I refer to him as my priest. Um, you know, he's a, he's a guy I can go to. Um, and there are times I went to him and just bared my soul. And, uh, um, he was there and he was encouraging to me. He's one man, another guy is Uh, Two guys, Lloyd Shadrach and Jeff Schulte, they started a church in Nashville called Fellowship Bible Church. Those guys were, we went, we started going there, I think when there was like 50 people there. I think there's probably 3,000 people now, but um, those guys, those guys are both gifted teachers. And um, lately, Michael Easley's been a church, been a pastor of fellowship for the last seven or eight years, and he's been great. To, to listen under, and and I went to Christ Community Church here in Nashville, where um, uh, Scotty um, Scotty Smith was the pastor, and uh, he just we he, he just he, he, I learned from him the meaning and definition of grace, and uh, so I just felt fortunate. I just I feel very fortunate.
0: Well, let's transition from that into your ministry. Both hands, now one hand for the widow. One for the orphan, that's clearly from the, the biblical mandate, not to forget the widows and orphans. H- how did you transition from an accessible business into a uh, both-hands ministry? Well, that's a, that's, it's, just a, it's a great story. I was on the board of Bethany Christian Services, uh, the
1: local board here in Nashville. When I left Southwestern in 1997, I had four children, and you know I was on the road too much. I just thought uh, I don't want to be on the road for the rest of my career, so I, I made it. And since I was wasn't traveling I had time to actually volunteer and become part of the community here at Nashville more. So um and anyone who travels knows what I mean by that. You know, when you're on the road all the week, you just really don't get have a time to, to do something in your community as much as like to. But um I chose to be on this board um and they asked me because I was I'm pretty strong pro lifer. I made a Tell me a little strong, bit about
0: what Bethany is. I'm not you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with it. I've heard of it and I wouldn't say I'm that familiar with it, I do know what it is.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure how many offices they have around the country, about 50, 60, or 70, but they basically administer to women in crisis pregnancies. Okay. And, um, you know, give them confidence, they counsel them, do you want to give this big up for adoption, or can you You want to parent this child? Uh, they're also an adoption agency, you know, that that's part of what they do too, so, um, and they also work with, uh, thought they're involved in the foster care system in some way or another too, so, um, it was just a really good thing for me to volunteer with because I thought, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. You can't just preach pro-life without doing something.
0: Well, and, and it sounds um, like your your ministry is a natural, because there is an increasing move internationally, actually, towards redefining what pro-life means. It means more than anti-abortion because it, it was always anti-abortion and pro-life meant the same thing to a lot of people for a lot of years. But, you know, a lot of people are saying biblically the understanding that life is precious both before and after birth and, often the orphans are the ones that are forgotten, sometimes even more so than the unborn.
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes Christians are wrongly accused of this, because I think the people who accuse them don't really, they don't get into the weeds, they don't see all the details, but, you know, there's so many Christian organizations and nonprofits, 501 501c3s that are ministering to women in crisis pregnancies, and also minister to women after they give birth. The ones who are single moms there there's a bunch of them that help them there 's a bunch of them that even minister to the women after they 've given up their child because there's a lot of pain that goes with that too mm-hmm. and and uh, we just do everything we can to to come alongside women who've made that courageous choice you know to give this child life and, and I, think, um, I think
0: we've grown into that more though over the years because I can remember. Many many pro life Sundays where the mothers who were there who put their children up for adoption were not honored in any way. You know that. uh
1: I, Yeah, I know, and I, you know, and part of that's just you know our society's changing, and you know there's there's a lot, lot more of it happening than it was 50 years ago. You know what I mean? That's that's happening more as we see a lot more single moms. All you got to do is look at the statistics of our country, you know, and the the, the families that don't have fathers in them and things like that. So. Um, obviously we're gonna change and hopefully figure out how to give more grace and, and encourage these people instead of contending.
0: Like you know that, what I mean? Yeah, I like Brendan Manning's book, All Is Grace. So it uh yeah, and let's let's transition back to where we were. We were talking about that the pro life is important to you and that led to you getting involved with, with orphans and widows.
1: Uh you see I'm on the board of Bethany Christian services. So here's what happened. One year they told me I'm in charge of the fundraiser. So I chose to do a golf fundraiser that year. I said, We're gonna raise money by this. <laughs> And here's a kind of deal, it's not, it wasn't the kind of deal where everyone pays an admission fee, and that's how you raise the money, although well, most of them are like that. Now, But this one was, you recruit about 20 guys to golf, and before they golf, you just ask them to send out letters to all their friends saying, would you sponsor me while I golf? You know, and it's kind of like a 100-hole golf thing, where someone says, yeah, I'll sponsor a dollar a hole, $10 a hole, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep.
1: Anyway, so I mail my letters out like I'm supposed to, and I have a buddy of mine, Uh, who was in a CLC group. I bought a study with me. (laughs) I I sent him a letter. He sent my letter back to me. But he didn't send a check. He just scribbled on my letter with a magic marker. He said, J.T., if you told me you were working on a widow's house, I might sponsor you. Mm -hmm. But you're just golfing. Nice cause, but not my money. (laughs) And, yeah, it was kind of a, it was, you know, Rules from a friend can be trusted. I always remind, him, whenever I see that problem, when I read it, you know, my daily reading, I always think of Bill Iverson, um, you know, and, and how he told me what he was thinking and how that just, I mean, when I, I called him a couple of days later and we laughed about it and talked about it. He still didn't give me any money, but, <laughs> you know, the idea never left me. I mean, whenever I saw a razor after that, like a 5K or a golf tournament, I kept asking myself if they were working out a widow's house instead of running, would that be more effective? And I just couldn't, but I couldn't figure out how to put it together. I mean, it was, you might say it haunted me for literally two to three years. I just figured out what do I do with this? You know, even met with some men to kind of throw some things back and forth. I didn't know if I was supposed to do this to raise money for sonograms, for, you know, um, pro-life clinics, that, you know, those kind of things. But until a couple of years later, after I got that letter, I'm in church at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm in the hallway meet a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a couple months. I said, Don, what's up? He said, I'm adopting four kids from Moldova. And I was kind of taken back. I said, wow, what happened? Because Don already has three children.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, what happened? He said, well, I went over there on a mission with Sweet Sleep. They're a group that delivers beds to orphanages in, in Moldova. He said, and I was there for 10 days. I fell in love with this little boy, 11-year-old boy, Throughout the week, we became inseparable. And when I got back, we decided to start the adoption process. Well, in the process, we found out he's got three siblings. And Don just looked at me and he says, and we're not going to break up the siblings. Well, I'm the just right guy to say that to. (laughs) You know, because I was the product of someone who didn't break up the siblings. You know? And someone kept someone made efforts, someone sacrificed, someone spent a lot and endured a lot by keeping us five kids together. So I didn't sit there and tell Don, you're crazy, are you sure? I mean, I literally, and I remember, Greg, looking at him, I remember the thought that went through my head was, here's a man who's trusting God in a way that I envy. I want to have that kind of faith to do something that if it's going to work requires God. And I just looked at Don, I said, how much is this going to cost? Because I knew it was going to be expensive because by that time I had adopted, our fifth child adopted, so I had adopted I knew it was going to be expensive. How much? He said about 65000 I said, do you have any idea how you're going to raise that money? He said, no. I said, I, think I got an idea. And so next Saturday, Don and I got together. We planned it all out. I mean, and we long story short, we got about 13, 14 guys. We all mailed letters out to everyone we knew saying, would you sponsor me for the day while I work on this widow's house? I found a widow in Nashville here who needed help. We got all the supplies donated by either local merchants or just individuals who liked what we were doing. So we didn't spend any money. I mean, we all spent money on stamps. That's it. Mm -hmm. And we spent the day working on Miss Lucille's house. And when it was over, we'd raised (laughs) $74,000. To say I was blown away is an understatement. I literally felt I was standing on holy ground. And as I look back on it, I mean, I think I was, you know, it's like God was winking at me saying, JT, what is an orphan? What did you expect? You know? And, uh, I was expecting 10 or 15,000. I wasn't thinking big enough. God had bigger plans. So that was, that was amazing. And about six months later, another buddy of mine came up to me and said, Hey, I heard was David Don, would you help me? And I said, sure, let's, let's do it again. And he needed to raise about 13000 and I remember we raised about, so the project ended up happening about a year after that first one. That was in April of '08. We did that second project, and we raised about $12,000. And that was, uh, that was a huge day for me. Because I remember going up on top of the roof because on that particular project we actually replaced this lady's roof. <laughs> Which we I don't suggest no. people do, but uh <laughs> but I had people around me who said, Jake, we got it, don't worry. All you gotta do is get it get it donated, get the roof donated. And that's a God story there too, because the business I was in at that point, I was a headhunter and uh, you know, a recruiter. Right. And the business I area that I was focusing on was the construction industry. So I knew the presidents of many local commercial construction companies in town. All they had to do was call one of them up and tell him what we were doing. And he said, sure, what do you need? I'll get it for you. And, I mean, it was just amazing how God just makes those connections and things like that. But I remember I was on top of that roof. um, And I looked out at the street and there were 19 cars on the street. And there was 52 people on the ground or on that road, fixing this lady's house up, literally transforming the outside of her whole property and putting a roof on other stuff. And I remembered, it just took me back to when I was 12, because about a month after the accident happened, um, I came home from school. Now, now, I should clarify this. My little sisters, who were five and three years old at the time of the accident, they moved in with my aunt and uncle right away in Milwaukee. Us three boys, we were seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. We stayed on the farm because for two reasons. One was to finish the school year out. I think they probably all felt that we had enough trauma without going from, you know, a small town in Iowa to a big city, uh, for school. But also my dad had a, his brother who was 63 was his business partner. And uncle Clifford, he couldn't do all the chores himself.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: needed help. So we stayed on the farm <clears throat> to finish the school year out and to help with chores. Well, about a, so I'm going to school about a month after the accident. It's a beautiful April day. The bus is dropping us off, and the bus stops about a half mile from the house. It's Ill, so you can kind of see a lot of, the, a lot of our farm. And I got off the bus, and there in our fields were all our neighbors with their tractors and their plows. And their discs and their planters, and they were planting our crops. <laughs> Man, and I remember that day. It was just—I just—I'll never forget that. And when I stood on that roof, I thought to myself on that day, and I thought, "This is what we should do. This is what we're supposed to do—is help people who need help." And um, I, met, I went out to dinner that night with my wife after that second project, and. I was sitting across the table from her, we were talking about this and I was sitting there talking about all the things we could do with this and how it could be a business and all this stuff. And she looked at me and she said, you are positively a glow. You know, she said, I haven't seen you this excited about anything since you worked at Southwestern and we're working with young people. And I thought, yeah, this really does fire me up. So my wife was a homeschooling stay at home mom. She <laughs> went and took a job at a local university Uh, you know, outside the home, so we could have some insurance and some pay coming in. I basically left my company and started both hands in August of 08 to do it full time. And uh, can I give you the numbers now?
2: Oh,
0: I'd love to hear that. (laughs) We're coming up on 10 years. I'd like to hear the numbers and also kind of like to hear how it's developed and what was how you're doing things here.
1: Well, after nine years, we've done nine years now. Um, We've done 721 projects in 42 states.
0: Um, Tell me what a project is. Explain that to me.
1: A project is when a family who's adopting comes to us, they apply, and, and you know, I start working with them, and I teach them how to recruit a team. I just show them. We've got the whole process down. We've got a project manual. We've got a whole process. I mean, we've processed down. You know, we've done this a lot, so we know how to do this. And, um... I coach them through that, through phone calls, through uh, things we send through emails, attachments, just things like how to speak, how to talk to a widow, how to find a widow, how to talk to a store to try to get donations, you know, everything. And um, and then they, do, they recruit their friends, and they have a kickoff meeting where they tell their friends about the vision, and then... Uh, about two weeks before the project, they have another meeting with their friends called the letter party, and that's where everyone gets together to get the letters done. Because if you don't have a letter party, people won't get it done on their own. So we figured that out pretty early in the process. You got to have a, a meeting where people, busy people, can get this letter done, you know, and send letters out. And they hand address the envelopes, and so and we we have found a hand addressed envelope has a hundred percent open range rate. Rate. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> Not like emails emails don't have a hundred percent open rate. <laughs> uh, so we, we supplement that the day, the week of the project, we always supplement that with, uh you know, um, with, with the social media stuff and the emails, but the initial surge is hand addressed envelopes. And then they spend a day working on the widow's house and that's a project. And then, you know, we, uh, we take the money and, and, uh, keep it in their account. And when they have, uh, expenses come up that are related to the adoption, then they're reimbursed or else we pay the, the vendor directly. But that's a project.
0: So helping widows so, helps the orphans. That's the way, I mean, you're funding the orphan adoptions through helping widows.
1: Yeah, a lot of times people, when they first hear it, they try to connect the widow and the orphan. There's really not a connection. It's just, there's just two separate incidents, two separate entities being brought together for a day. The widow gets free labor. She gets loved on by... 10, 15, 20, 30, sometimes 40 or 50 people come to her house and fix it up and do a transformation. So she gets free labor. She gets her house fixed up, decluttered, clean, landscaped. And then um, all the money raised goes towards the cost of the adoption. Well,
0: how, so, how, how great uh, need have you seen for widows needing help? Oh, my word.
1: It's just, uh, I, I, that's, you know, one of those things, those unintended consequences that sometimes happen when you, when you start doing something. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea the needs of widows in our country. They're, they're, they're forgotten. They're, for the most part, they seem to be forgotten. Um, and I'm probably generalizing, so that may not be fair. I think it may be fair, this.
0: yeah, because I've, I've done stories over the years about uh, particularly working class folks who don't draw very much and are left alone for a long period of time.
1: Well, there, I'm going to say this. There are some churches that do an unbelievable job of taking care of their widows. I mean, I've worked with some families, and I say, I always tell them, you know, the first place to look for a widow is inside your church, you know, someone to serve within your church. And there's been a few few families that say, J.P., we 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 take care of all the widows. So our widows don't need anything. And I love that when I hear that. Really? And then I always, you know, I direct them to go to other sources and to find a widow. But um, for the most part, I have found that, you know, if you ask a pastor, how many people were in church that day? They usually know that number. If you ask them how many kids were in their Sunday school program. They usually know that number. If you ask them how much was the offering, they usually know that number. If you ask them how many widows are in your congregation, they usually don't know that number. And and I, my, I, I hope someday through this, I can raise awareness of widows with pastors and and people in the church. It doesn't have to be pastors. To do that. I, I, I don't mean to put it on pastors. Pastors need to leadership. is what you're saying they, to get it. They, on the agenda. Yeah, leadership. The pastors like they need to tell their congregation. They need to find somebody in their churches and inspire people in the church to say, you know what? I see this. I'm going to take this on. This is going to be my baby. You know, and, and I think that's how you develop leaders. See who's got a heart for it and and enable them. Help them. Encourage um but we've done it's, it's it's amazing when i look back at the numbers now we, i think uh, 861 kids are no longer orphans and 795 widows have been blessed through both hands and we've raised 8.3 million dollars for families to use for adoption and greg i gotta tell you this this is the part that most people don't believe when I when they hear it, but of that 8300000 million we've raised, we don't take a dime out for our expenses. 100% of what we help a family raise goes towards the cost of the adoption. And I set it up that way at the very beginning. Um, you know, I just thought, we're just going to do it this way because I think we can do it and it, it's going to work. And so far we haven't missed the payroll. People support us. You know, every year instead of doing a banquet or a concert, we do a both-hands project ourselves, the board and I and about... Well, it's that's actually grown to about 120 people <laughs> here in the Nashville area. They jump in, and, and once a year we do a big project and raise a bunch of money for operations here at both hands. So, and we have obviously lot, a lot of donors and people who love what we do.
0: Well, I, can I mean, they just the love word, what we do. The word has spread, and, and really one of the reasons that prompted me to contact you to talk to you was people are, have talked a lot about uh, your financial responsibility and the fact you're raising money and the money's going to where you all say it is. Um, Tell me a little bit about orphans. What do people need to know about the the orphan? Is is it a crisis? Are there a great need for homes? Are there misunderstandings about orphans? What do people need to know?
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me some of the misunderstandings. Let's start with that. Well, uh, I I think,
1: man, that's a hard question. The misunderstandings, you know, I, I think... I've been in this world now because we adopted in 2003. You know, I was part of Bethany, so I was aware that there was an orphan crisis worldwide. You know, you hear different numbers, 147 million, 153 million. And some of the misunderstandings are those are all double orphans, but they're not all double orphans. Like, I was a double orphan. Right. Um, You know, but there's a lot of who who are fatherless, though. You know, that there's not a father being taken care of by their mother, who is a widow. So there's a certain amount of those 150 million that are that are single, what you'd call single orphan, but they still need care and they need help. But there's a lot of them in orphanages around the world that are, and these orphanages, they're, they're not, it's not like, it's not like the United States where, you know, they have all the things that they need and there's assistance from mostly churches, some government assistance and things like that, the foster care system. Um, there's a lot of countries that don't have that you know, and, and these kids are in orphanages and, and it's not a pretty picture. And, you know, obviously if you can get somebody within that country to adopt that child, I think that would be the ultimate, but that doesn't happen all the time. There's enough, even if you did all that, there's still going to be enough orphans that people from other countries can come in and adopt these kids. There's a lot of people in America, um, they do domestic adoptions because there's a single mom. And a single mom has had the courage to say, "You know what? I, I'm in this situation, but I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to kill this child. I, I mean, this this is a this is a this is a human being." And um, they're they're courageous, and they they take that baby to term and they give it to a family that is not able to have children. So, I mean, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, I think you did. What what
0: about you know? You've been doing this now nine years. What about the political shifts in international adoption? Seems to be the, the laws are changing a good bit.
1: Yeah, it's interesting No, I mean, it, we, we kind of see every year there's a different trend. I mean, for many year, early years of both hands, there was a lot of adoptions coming out of Ethiopia and China. And when we adopted from China in 2003, it took us about eight months from start to finish. Um, and that was for what you would refer to as a healthy child. Even how long ago was
0: that? Tell, tell me about your, it's your daughter, right?
1: 2003. Okay. yeah that was fourteen years ago. We just celebrated her gotcha day last month um yeah that was uh that was great i i mean I, you know there's a whole story there
2: great
0: right i'm sure you already had you said you already had four kids and you adopted her
1: yes yes and uh and a lot of that came because i was you know on the board of Bethany, so I was always hearing about adoptions and there's a there's there's a long version a short version, but I would come home from meetings. You know, my wife would say, well, how was the meeting? And I said, oh, it was good. We did this. We did that. And there's a couple of kids down at the neonatal unit at Baptist, uh, newborn. They're waiting for a family. And my wife would say, oh, should we go see it? Let's go see him." And I'd go, wait a minute. honey. we just started this business. We're not making, we're really not drawing a salary yet. I said, if we do this, do you want to, I mean, if we do this, we're we'll going to go into our savings. Do you want to go into our life savings? And I would always answer that, that way. And, and there was a lot of people at this point part of the story. People were praying, you know, and, and different things were happening in my life. There were times I was excited about being, about adopting. There were times I said, we can't, we don't have any money. I mean, (laughs) all the money is going out the door. There's none coming in. I'm starting this new business and, you know, and I'd come home from another meeting and my wife would say how to go. And we'd have the same exchange. And, and I'd say, and there's a child down at Stone Hills Hospital. And she said, Should we go see it? I said, No, if we do, we we'll have to go into our life savings yet, you know. And, and I'll never forget it. It was December 24th, 2001. My wife, it was 11 o'clock at night. I did what I usually do on Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock. My wife sent me up to the attic to get the stockings to hang by the chimney with care. And I looked up and I went to the attic, I looked around, and what I saw was strollers high chairs, playpen, car seats. And I thought to myself, we've got everything we need to raise another child. And the thought hit me. What's wrong with using a life savings to save a life? And that was my watershed moment. It was like, all of a sudden God just convicted me there about what's not gonna rust, what's not gonna blow away, what's not gonna burn. And it wasn't an IRA. It was a child. And I walked down the stairs. My wife was sitting upstairs to go get something from the attic. And I said, honey, we got high chairs. We got strollers, cribs, car seats. And she thought I was going to say, it's time for a yard sale. Let's get rid of this stuff. And I just looked at her. I said, what's wrong with using a life savings to save a life? Let's adopt. She said, are you serious? I said, yeah, let's do it. She said, can I tell the kids? yeah so that next morning on Christmas morning, each one of the kids got a separate note in their envelope for having a new baby brother or sister so that's where the journey started for us, so that's not where it started, but that's where you know it was like all I had one hundred percent full steam ahead all right, <laughs> you, know? you gotta tell me you
0: gotta tell me what a blessing she's been to your family then
1: oh it's amazing she's rocked my world I mean. You know, and and, uh, and it's amazing because uh, this, is, this is our child. And uh, we got her when she was 17 months old. She was in kind of rough shape. She was, you know, I guess categorized as a healthy child, but she really wasn't. And uh, she, we got her when she was 17 months old. She couldn't roll over. Um, there's a lot of things she couldn't do because the orphanages in China, at least at that point, they were not, they weren't staffed. And he, to, to take care of the kids, they had to do what they had to do. They strapped them down and they, so they wouldn't get out of the cribs. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was going on. And it would break your heart. But uh, we got her, and, and uh, it was just, she has been a blessing. She's opened up my eyes. She's, uh, I, I don't even, I, you know, and so many things people say when they say, I, can I love an adopted child as much as my own children? And I just, that's the, that's the furthest thing from reality. Once you do it, it, I don't even look at her as, I, I don't even think of her as adopted. I mean, the only time I think of her as adopted is I'm having conversations like this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, it's just been amazing, an amazing thing. Um, but she's opened my eyes and, you know, she's 15 now and a freshman in high school. So it's been wonderful. And it's, it's, it's opened my eyes and it's helped me be in a position where, you know, I think God—that was just one of the major, one of the first steps of God helping me to start both hands. Um, but that was—that uh, was exciting.
0: So uh, your your passion is obvious in this, JT. But we, I guess you're 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 really saying that the reason that the scriptural mandate there to remember the widows and orphans is as much for the people remembering the widows and orphans as for the widows and orphans themselves. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many times, we pass them all the time. We, you know, it's like you got to do something. I mean, what are you going to, what are you gonna, uh, this? This is Hotel Earth. You know, like Michael Easy would always say, at best, it's a clean bus station. This isn't our final resting place. This isn't home. This isn't the to end up. And as long as we're here, we got to do something. And for me, the picture that fires me up. I, know, I I always say this, or I'm telling people about this, but I just picture in the morning when Satan gets up with his little minions and he's around and he's checking the checking these boxes. When he gets to my name, I don't want him checking the box that says not a threat. I want him thinking, crap, he's up again. You know that I want. I want to make a difference. I want to. I want to know that I went out saying that the world is. I mean, we all, I think we have an obligation to make this world a little bit better place than if it had been if we weren't here. And uh, both hands gives me a chance to do that. And, you know, honestly, that's why my career, the Southwest, those 23 years I spent working with young people and knocking on doors and everything I learned just prepared me for what I'm doing now. And I'm so grateful. And, and, and here's some interesting thing. I was 12 years old when the accident happened. I was 52 when I started both hands. That's a 40-year difference. And I mean, there's some biblical significance to that. Someone pointed <laughs> that out to me about four or five months ago. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it was literally like, like, when I was 52, God was saying, JT, this is what it's all been about. This is what I prepared you for. Now, just tee it up and just swing. That's all you got to do. Just swing. And that's what it's been like. Well, I feel the, very fortunate.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, the, probably the best place for folks listening to this to find out more about you is your new book, The Orphan, The Widow, and Me, J.T. Olson. It's available yeah. on Amazon pretty much anywhere, right? Amazon, or you can go to bothhandsbook.com and order it from us. And if you want me
1: to sign it, you put it note in there, we'll sign it for you. Tell
0: me about both hands book. Both hands, uh, .com. Uh, Just If that's the best place for people to find out how they can get involved either with orphans or helping widows, that's a good starting point for them. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, well, BothHandsBook.com is how to get the book. BothHands.org. Okay. Dot org,
0: okay. BothHands.org both to make org. that clear, okay.
1: Yeah, that's our website. And if you go on there, I mean... And it's really kind of neat. We, got, we have three different kinds of projects you can do. Some, um, and uh, we work with uh, families. Who, most of our projects are families that want to do um, adoptions, and they need to raise money for their, for their child uh, to, to raise money for that. We also have, we do projects, sometimes groups come to us and say, I want to use this model to raise money for an orphanage. And so it works. We call that the orphan care projects. You know, sometimes people use that model to raise money for their adoption fund at their church. You know, when they have an adoption fund, where they give grants sure. to members of the church who are adopting. Um, we've got one church in Georgia. They, they do it every year. They've done it for five years. The last couple of years, they've raised over 100000 um <laughs> for their adoption fund. So they're not only helping people from their church, they're helping people from their city outside their church walls with adoption and it's it's uh it's really wonderful and then uh and of course we do have a what what we call the vision project and that's when people come to us and say you know i just love both hands what can i do can i do a project and raise money for both hands operations and that's called the vision project that doesn't happen a lot but you know we have two or three of those every
0: year well, J.T., so. I can tell you, uh, I appreciate what you're doing, and, and uh, may your tribe increase uh, as we move ahead and the needs increase, man. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Great, It was an honor. Thanks. There are a lot of folks out there in every tradition who want to tell you what they believe and, uh, and write it all down for you, and, and while well, they're certainly placed for some of that, I like to talk to somebody who wants to show me what they believe, and I appreciate uh, guys like JT and the work they do and the amount of uh, suffering they turn into, into joy for a lot of families and for a lot of widows who uh, really don't have a lot of other options at this point in, in, in our country today. That's it for this week's Thinking God podcast. Join me again next time as we look at voices of faith and hope in a world that doesn't always reward those. Will
2: rise from my bed with a question again as I work to inherit the restless wind. The view from my window is cold and obscene. I wanna talk